Would you pray with me? Living God, we thank you for the journey that you have us on, a journey after Jesus, a journey of becoming who you created us to be. In this preaching moment, would you enable me to communicate the things that you want said, that you want spoken um, to both my own heart and to the hearts of our congregation and to the world? And would you help us to be fertile soil in which your word can take root and grow and flourish and bear much fruit? In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, we pray. Amen. One of the many great lines out of J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings is uttered fairly early on in the book by the character Bilbo Baggins, who said, It's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out your door. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Bilbo himself had his own adventurous journey in Tolkien's previous work, The Hobbit. And as I considered my bookshelf, not that one back there, but this one up here, I, I was taken with how many books I enjoy that also involve great travel narrative. So The Iliad and the Odyssey by Homer, Virgil's The Aeneid, Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and Dante's Divine Comedy all involve journeys and pilgrimage and, and, and adventure. Uh, Shosaku Endo's The Samurai and most of the Narnia series by C.S. Lewis also have these incredible travel narratives as part of their plot device. Now, none of these great stories are about travel in and of itself, but each one frames what the author wants to say within the, the framework of an epic or an adventure or a journey. Many scholars see clear themes in Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. I suppose Tolkien could have written an essay on friendship, or an editorial on his critique of the mechanized modern world at the expense of creation. He could have given a lecture on standing against tyranny and systemic evil and oppression. But what he did instead was to craft an epic journey where those themes of friendship and social critique and courageous resistance to evil were creatively and beautifully woven in as implicit features in a brilliantly crafted travel story. Tens of millions of people have, have read The Lord of the Rings, not because they're necessarily looking for life lessons, but because it's a great story. A story that's played out with the plot devices of a perilous journey. Now, there are many different theories on why most humans resonate with travel narratives, and I, I won't go into them here, but I will say two things. First, there's just something about journey opens our senses and gives us new perspective. If you've ever been working on a project and you, and you get stuck in like writer's block or, or creativity has dried up in that moment, you know that if you simply go for a walk or take a short hike, your perspective will be far more productive than if you just tried to push through, right? It's on the road or the trail or the journey where we're forced out of the comforts of our routines, where we can so often uh, kind of operate our lives in, in autopilot. It's when we're adventuring somewhere new in a context that's not so controlled, that's not so familiar, that we're more aware and more in tune with what's going on around us and the people we're with. So in a sense, there's a practical benefit to journey 
to and from our home base. Our home base, our usual life, is the essential, it's essential to put our journey into context. And our journeys are helpful for putting our home base into fresh perspective. And I would argue that healthy discipleship often involves journeying with Jesus in such a way that we're periodically stretched and challenged and receive fresh perspective so that we, we can then use that to make healthy changes in the way we're living. The second reason I think so many of us resonate with framing life in terms of epic or journey or travel narrative is because it's part of our collective history in God's world. I mean, consider just a few biblical examples. Abraham and Sarah were called by God to form a people who would be a blessing to the world. But as part of their calling, they're made to journey from Ur of the Chaldeans all the way to the land of Palestine, a land they had never known before. Abraham's son Isaac didn't do a whole lot in the biblical narrative. He's nearly sacrificed after a journey to the top of a mountain, and he finds his wife because Abraham's servant goes on a journey to another land to find her at the well. Jacob, the deceiver, learns to trust and worship God while learning hard life lessons of humility and truthfulness largely on journeys. And of course, one of the most foundational stories of our faith and all of Scripture is that of the Exodus, a 40-year journey of wilderness wanderings in which a pluralistic group of Hebrew slaves learns to know God and who, who he is calling them to be. This, this lesson in the 40-year wanderings of the wilderness is not done in a classroom with PowerPoint, followed by a multiple-choice test at the end. It's done through formative experience of being with God and being on the road together. For the past several weeks, we have been following the story of God through the life of the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. And Paul has preached sermons and shared Jesus with people. He's made disciples and raised up leaders. He's been confronted with hostility and he's been delivered by the hand of God. And in all of these important conversations and teachings and miracles and church plants, they've all taken shape in the context of a travel narrative. So in our story, in Acts 20, the one we're going to look at right now, Paul is well into his third missionary journey. You can see on the map how he set out from Antioch and passed through Tarsus and Derbe and Lystra, Asia Minor, including Ephesus. And then Timothy and Erastus went on ahead to Macedonia via a seagoing route, while Paul stayed on at Ephesus before traveling overland up the coast to Tros, then to Philippi, making visits to churches he had planted on his way to Corinth. He spent three months there and was going to head to Jerusalem from there by ship, but then he found out that there was a conspiracy to try and kill him. Now, if you want an easy way to kill someone, get them on a ship and dump them in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea one night. So Paul wisely avoids sea travel in this instance and heads back through Macedonia and then over to Tros, which is where we find ourselves in this part of Acts 20. Now, there are two ways I want to approach the text with you today. First, I'm going to do an overview of the story and point out three themes that I think Luke really wants us to see. Second, I'm going to personalize the story by inviting us to reflect on it as a holy travel narrative. Okay, so first off, there's a clear resonance that I think Luke wants us to see between Paul and Jesus. 
So in Luke 9:51, that's the Gospel of Luke, we read that Jesus has set his face toward Jerusalem. And from that point on, we see his determination to head toward his destiny, his sacrifice for the salvation of the world. Jesus was determined to follow through on the plans he had made in the beginning with the Father and with the Spirit. So in a similar way, in Acts 19.21, we read that Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. So Paul is determined that his path of following Jesus would, like his master, end in hardship for the sake of the gospel. Most scholars see this connection between Paul and Jesus, but John Stott does such a good job of summarizing that resonance. And so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to quote mostly what Stott says here about these six parallels between Jesus and Paul. So the first one, Jesus traveled to Jerusalem with a group of disciples, and so does Paul. Number two, Jesus was opposed by hostile Jewish leadership, and so was Paul. Number three, Jesus made three successive predictions of his inevitable, inevitable suffering, including being handed over to the Gentiles. And Paul does as well, three successive predictions of his being handed over. Number four, like Jesus, Paul declared his readiness and willingness to lay down his life in order to fulfill his calling, which in like manner, number five, Paul, like Jesus, was determined even in the face of certain doom, to keep marching forward even after things started getting harder and harder. And number six, like Jesus, Paul abandoned control of his future and chose to trust the Father. Paul and Jesus were both living for a future that they hoped for but didn't yet see. They were both living for a resurrection reality and had such faith that they could go up, they, they could let go of the glory of this life in order to make sure that others could share in the new life with them. The second major theme I want to point out in the story is the sovereignty of God. I've said all along that this book should be called something different, like the Acts of God or the Acts of Jesus through his church in the power of the Spirit. Something other than the Acts of the Apostles. And here's the reason. In the beginning of the book, Jesus promises the disciples that he will make them witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You know, once he released the power of the Spirit on them. And on the surface, what we see is Peter and Philip and John and Paul and others preaching and making disciples and being witnesses all over the known world. But how are they doing that? It's Jesus fulfilling his promise to them. It's the Spirit who sends them here but prevents them from going there. It's God who empowers them to perform miracles and healings and exorcisms. And in this story, Paul is accompanied by disciples. But who are they? Well, there's Sopater from Berea representing Macedonia, and Aristarchus and Secundus representing not only Thessalonica in Greece, but likely also the slave and free classes. There's Luke and Philippi, and Gaius and Timothy from Galatia, and Tychicus and Trophimus from Ephesus in Asia. And what we see is not just a random group of people or disciples following Paul, 
but people representing the known Eastern world who had been transformed by the power of the gospel. No matter how much resistance or arrests or beatings that Paul endured, God was in control, putting his plans of salvation into action. And then notice where Paul and these disciples are going. They're heading to Jerusalem, but it's not just for a vacation, and it's not merely to be there at Pentecost time, but it's mainly to, 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 to bring this collection of money that they'd been taking from the Gentile church to help support the struggling Jerusalem church. And this is a clear allusion to Isaiah 60, verse 5, in which Zion will see, and I quote, the wealth of the nations coming to you. Jesus came to rescue us, and we killed him. Paul comes bearing gifts of the nations, and he will be arrested and sent on trial to Rome. But none of these hardships are wasted in God's economy. Jesus rose and now reigns over all, and Paul spread the gospel to Rome, and now through Rome and all of the, the, the channels of travel and power, now every continent has heard of Jesus. In these desperately frustrating and hard times, it is good news to know that Jesus is sovereign over all, that his faithfulness is unwavering even when it feels like the world is falling apart. And this leads me to the third theme of the story. God's sovereignty is also personal, and it extends to you. Sometimes it's easier to believe that God is in control over all the big things like the final outcomes of world history and the overarching mission of the church. But this story goes from the wide-angle lens of Paul and his companions going to Jerusalem, and it zooms in on a typical Sunday gathering uh, there in Tros. So the preacher is going along, Paul, and a young person falls asleep, <clears throat> and he falls out of the window. If this wasn't so tragic, it would almost be funny. Even his name of the young man, Eutychus, it means lucky in Greek. I mean, how ironic can you get? You have to appreciate, though, that in the Greco-Roman world, Sundays were not a day off. This young man, Eutychus, had probably worked all day long and then in the warm evening was trying hard to stay awake by getting into the cool evening air in that windowsill. Windows back then didn't have any glass, so he dozes off as his back is leaning up maybe against the corner of the sill, and then he falls out of the window and to his death three stories below. But his single little life is worth saving. You know, in the story, Eutychus is not ridiculed for falling asleep during the Apostle Paul's sermon. He simply saved, which I hope gave you some permission to fall asleep during my sermons as well. Once again, we see this parallel with other biblical stories. Like Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 21, Paul lays on top of this dead boy and embraces him, and his life is restored. As Paul gives himself to the discipleship journey, God meets him and empowers him not only to do great things on the historical level, but also to give him power to give life to this young man who had died in an accident. I, for one, need that reminder. You know, I, I tend to downplay God's interest in me. 
It's less threatening, and I have less risk of being let down if I keep God in my mind, interested in all the big things of the world, like geopolitics and global salvation. But I need to remember that He cares about me and the mundane fears and challenges that I face every day. And I bet you need to hear that good news as well. And I hope you do. Okay, so that's an overview of the text and its three major themes as I see them, and I think as Luke wants to show them. But now I want to leave you with three exercises that I'm finding meaningful for me, and I hope you'll find them meaningful as well. Okay, so I'm going to give you three exercises. First, consider that every life, including yours, is a journey. That means that you have some travel narratives, just like Paul and his stories. So I want to encourage you to pick a journey. Now, it could be your whole life. It could be a season, like maybe there was a season when you were in school or university or you had a career change. A season. Um, maybe you want to pick this, this, the season of pandemic um, and just take a look at that timeline. Or you might want to pick an actual journey because God often works with us when we are physically moving somewhere. So several years ago, there was a group of women from a group of women from lettered streets who went uh, on beyond Malibu and climbed a mountain together and uh, shared life together. So maybe you want to use something like that. I, for me, was thinking about a sabbatical I took in 2018 when I went on a solo road trip from Bellingham to Colorado. And I stayed at this retreat center and I had a week-long kind of counseling session, uh, completely dug into some, some deep things in my heart and my soul. And then I was able to process those things on the return road trip. So the question is, well, now that you've got your travel narrative, your journey in mind, how was God faithful to you during that time? And what did you learn about God and yourself? Okay, the second thing I want you to consider when in your own time after the sermon, traveling companions. Most of us have had companions along the way. Maybe it's during a season in your life you had some strong supporters. Maybe it was a counselor or a therapist who walked alongside you, a pastor or a mentor or a spouse or a good friend. Think about your season that you're reflecting on and name your traveling companions. Consider writing a note of thanks or encouragement to someone who was with you during a particularly hard time. And third, I want you to consider the mundane parts of your life. Just like this story was full of this meta-narrative of Paul's traveling from all of these places to Jerusalem, then it narrowed down to Eutychus falling out the window and God doing a miraculous thing through Paul. Most of us live life in the mundane things of waking and sleeping and eating and working or going to school. And in this particularly difficult season, where might you be in danger of falling out the window, right? How might you need the life-giving breath of God to reanimate your tired flesh and your broken heart and your worried mind? I want to invite you to take that to Jesus in this moment.